This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to another episode of Quantization. That's a reminder of why we need to have architects much more engaged within public health. And, and, or maybe another way to phrase that is public health much more engaged with architects. I don't I want to be a, putting in an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a two-way street there. The definition of home varies in different contexts and times, and at the same time is shaped by its residents. Same as how we define our homes or living places, we are affected by our lifestyle and where we stay the most. In events like the current pandemic, the COVID-19, we are not only spending most of our days at home, but many of us should work, study, exercise, entertain kids and pets, and do many other activities while at home. As a result, we face many new challenges every day and many shared experiences that exclude us from social and personal activities. We should not forget that staying homes does not have the same meaning and value for everyone. We have to recognize that people live in a large variety of conditions, being alone, different types of families, sharing places, and homelessness. And also people who cannot stay at home due to their jobs and responsibilities. All these points prompt us to think about home and how can we redefine home for the post-COVID-19 time. Our societies were already at the stage of experiencing many changes in the nature of jobs and living. How the place of living affects our health and well-being and what needs to be different going forward. In this episode, we are practicing physical distancing far from our studio through an online platform. And strangely, we had technical difficulties during the recording and had to reschedule. Therefore, the episode recorded in two parts. It is funny how in time that everyone talks about the future of work from home, we are still experiencing connection difficulties even in a city like Toronto. We have a conversation about the built environment and system design, how architects, planners, and designers have a chance to think systematically about buildings, neighborhoods, and cities. Our guests today are John Patterson, that you heard before in an episode on inclusion and sustainability. Hi, uh, my name is uh, John Peterson. I'm an architect uh, working for a firm called uh, McLean and Yonkons Miller Architects here in Toronto. Um, I'm a senior associate there and also the uh, director of uh, sustainable design and uh, building innovation. And Cameron Norman. Hi, I'm, I'm Cameron Norman. I'm a professional designer, evaluator, educator, and psychologist based in Toronto who works uh, with government, healthcare, and nonprofits to help them innovate and evaluate what kind of impact those innovations have on the world. Um, I'm the principal of Sense Limited, an innovation and research consultancy, and I'm on the faculty at uh, the Faculty of Design at OCAD University and the Dalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. 
So, John, it's great to chat with you. I, I think the idea of thinking about physical space, systems, inclusion, and how we relate to all of those, particularly on a system level, probably has never in at least my lifetime ever been more relevant than it is right now, right here. It's been interesting just to think a lot about space. I think what's interesting about systems is that systems are always viewed from whatever perspective that you take. You move around the system, the system looks differently. And I think a lot of us right now are really starting to think a lot about what our homes look like, what it means to be home, what it means to stay at home, how we relate to our our world around us. And I think probably somebody who designs and and constructs these for a living, probably you have a lot to say on that and, and what it might mean for health. Uh, I, I certainly can think a lot about the health aspect, but as I was thinking about our conversation today, I've been thinking an, an awful lot about what it means to be at home. Where does my home sit? How is it connected? And, uh, and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. this is going to be really interesting. Yeah, the whole concept of where we've been over the past uh, few weeks in terms of changing how it work and what, how we uh, relate to the built environment of the home that we have in, that we sit in every day, um, everything has changed. It's uh, really been quite a startling kind of uh, upheaval. It's surprising on how uh, uh, resilient our office has been. We've been able to actually kind of move everybody to working remotely from home and have uh, many uh, sessions of kind of like social engagement where we're meeting at lunch. But um, it's also, it's been greatly surprising to watch everyone's backgrounds as well, as well within the video feeds. You can see everyone's uh, home life and um, see where they've set up their shop. I personally am sitting here in my dining room, um, just adjacent to an open kitchen. So it can get pretty loud. Hopefully no one will walk through during this podcast, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's so interesting. That idea of, of home and office being combined, I think. We've had the tools for 20 years. If you include just the phone, uh, probably a lot longer than that to be able to work from home. But now when, in most cases, it's not even an option anymore. I mean, some cases people would like to work from home because it would give them a chance to, you know, maybe not go into the office, save on a commute. Maybe they could do something else at home just to break things up. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it's we have a place that was designed for one personal purpose, which is now we're redesigning it for an office space. Like your your kitchen, probably you didn't think too much about it as being an office. And now here it is. Now it's a recording studio. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a home school as well at certain times of the day. There's a certain level of uh, expect. um, I think think there is a certain level of uh, resilience that's associated with uh, the typical family home. I mean, there's multiple uses within spaces. Um, but I don't think, you know, uh, the, the concepts are, um, too, are deeply ingrained in terms of being able to use a home as an office. And yeah. it definitely was not considered that much back in the day. I mean, my home is now 115 years old and it's been through many iterations, but uh, uh, I doubt there's been anybody that uh, extensively used it for working remotely, especially with uh, computers. Well, th- if you, if, I mean, just imagine this whole idea about resilience is a great term. Because I think it's one of those things that people understand, and yet at the same time, having that ability to bounce back, have that ability to to repair and and move, I think it's it's never been more more critical. I, I think as a at a global level, 
Yeah, agreed, agreed. And and definitely when you're talking about the, the built environment and uh, what uh, resilience means in across from like the home through to the community, I think uh, 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 definitely, I, 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 I'm definitely a part of uh, privilege when it comes to being able to work uh, technically from home. Well, and when, and when you think about this is that the interconnections between all of these things. So from, um, the perspective of, you know, if you have a job, it gives you purpose, meaning, it gives you something to wake up for every day, but it also gives you, of course, an income. Income allows you to to not only have a home, like a physical home that you can at least afford, in a, and hopefully a place that you reasonably like, but it also allows you to be close to things like schools or places where you can actually get some food in that. And what I what often happens with these situations is that we start to realize those gaps. So all of a sudden, the idea is that if you're, I think, well, we might have appreciated having a grocery store close to us, it might not have been a big deal. Um, now, all of a sudden, that becomes much more important in terms of thinking about where your home is and what your home looks like and, and you know, in terms of being able to then not only get food, but keep it mm-hmm. and cook it and prepare it. So many places now are are not designed for that. Yeah. Much. Yeah. I know um, there's a, a fellow in our office. He just um, uh, has recently um, moved into his, uh, his uh, brother's house out of town just uh, to um, actually uh, have a bit of a, a social structure. So he, his brother and his family, and he's a, a, a single man. He just moved out there with them so he could be a part of that household. And that uh, oh. goes to, goes to think about, you know, how, how the home, uh, the homes that we have are also designated upon this idea of independence in a single family home. I think that um, the what we're going to probably see, hopefully, going forward is this kind of going back to the concept of a multi generational house, where you can actually have uh, several generations or even different even different um, uh, siblings in their families living together, and what that means. It's a completely different construct on what a house uh, sh- uh, would or should look like. Yeah, it, it, it's incredible how we have a generation of structures. I, I don't want to call them even homes because I think home is as much a social construct as it is, um, you know, about a structure. But we have these structures that were never designed for this. Right. And and when you look at the idea about a single apartment, say a studio apartment, you think, well, that's that's fine because you can always go out. There's lots of people that you can meet hypothetically. You can go over to your brother or sisters. You can do all sorts of things. Now we don't have that. That's such an interesting story about your colleague choosing to do that. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to think that it is, it is uh, driven quite a bit by that uh, construct of being able to be uh, financially independent, uh, to be kind of independent as a person uh, with your own family against all of the other other elements within your family, be it a mother or a father or a brother or sister. The whole construct of kind of the new modern family house that um, reminds me of, uh, of this uh, program that was developed back post-war. It was uh, called the Case Study Houses. It was uh, a program for the design of uh, and building of inexpensive and inef- like efficient model homes for the post-war housing boom. It really l- looked at 
um, not only kind of like how we lived, but it, it changed the structure of the fundamental family home at that moment in time. And uh, uh, not only did it explore those kind of concepts of novel means of construction and prefabrication, um, but it, it, it kind of invented spaces such as the great room and all these kinds of aspects. But it never, never once did it look at, hey, what happens when uh, uh, grandma wants to come live with us or, uh, you know, or uh, my, my brother is going to be coming to live with us with his family. It just it doesn't take that into account at all. Well, and it's so interesting because if you think about it, I, I think one of the key words I just sort of heard through a new light was this idea about in, independent. That's exactly right. Is like our structures, our homes and our neighborhoods have overemphasized independence. Yes. And, you know, the idea is that even you move out as, as, a, as a young person is, you know, as soon as you can, you move out onto your own. So you have independence as opposed to designing for interdependence which is much more of a systems concept. The piece that entices me about this whole case study house thing was that um, uh, it brought together some of the best designers of the era. And um, they, they, were, they, only, they designed 36 of them and built roughly uh, um, with about 20 of them still surviving today. And I think it would be really, really fascinating if, if there were a program uh, developed again, revisited what it means to be instead of a post-war housing it's like post-covid housing is there is there new are there new models that can come into play that define what the uh, what the new home what the new house is and yeah. um is it built upon these ideas of uh flexible growth i mean are there are there modularities that can occur that allow uh, the home to uh, grow and, and uh, flex uh, up and flex down um, completely uh, yeah. within a kind of prefabricated well, notion. Well, there you go. Like, th there's resilience built into the structure of a, of a structure. Yeah, exactly. That idea of, of flexible growth. I, I think that's an interesting thing to consider from a from a systems perspective, but certainly from a, a structural perspective. When you think about these ideas are um, of how we've structured our neighborhoods are based on a on a relatively inflexible model that we're going to have to try and figure out. I, I would love to be able to see the post-COVID house. The priorities have now changed. It's an interesting thing to consider. But even the idea of flexibility, like I think the idea, I, I don't know myself, but is how often someone thinks about adaptation when they buy their home. Yeah, no, it is. It's very true that um, uh, I know the, the the home I live in has gone through many iterations, from a triplex down to now a single-family home, and um, we know we could easily go back to splitting up the house uh, 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 multiple different ways to suit different configurations. So it's designing for interdependence and independence at the same time. Yeah. I'd like to go back to your topic there where you were talking about um, uh, kind of healthy housing. I, I, I find mm. that uh, design, in, uh, in, and this is probably fits well within your systems, systems uh, thinking as well, the systems design, is really kind of uh, trying to engage within the people that will be uh, living with the design and uh, being able to conduct research to ensure that the project that you are designing meets and addresses their priorities. 
and I'm curious about what you think about the, the priorities that are changing now because of uh, the, the COVID crisis. One of the things I think priorities are going to come from this are not just your, your house, but but your house in proximity to certain spaces. So for example, do you have access to fresh air? Whether that is um, designing a different balcony or whether it's designing a, a patio or some sort of place, but but also designing a green space. I, I think the idea of from a health perspective, we know that there's a lot of data that suggests that access to green space has uh, positive mental health and, and there's been evidence for some physical health benefits. But I think it, it's always been in the idea that, you know, those green spaces are places where you can move. And I think what we're seeing now, particularly as we're starting to close them off, is that it's not just about moving. It's about this idea about living. It's about having a space that you can, you can be outside that you don't necessarily have to go to. To me, I think that's going to be one of the interesting things from a design perspective is how do you create, how do you bring back some of those, um, you know, how do you bring back the air? How do you bring back the, um, some places to move that are either attached to your home or, or readily accessible so you're not having to walk five or six blocks to some parquet <laughs> where that's perhaps serving 15 residential buildings? Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's also going to come from that when you think about the systems is, is this idea about how do we link where we live in the sense of the structure and the interior and exterior to where we work. And that idea about really understanding whether that turns into something like a home office or even the ability to connect with other people um, physically but also electronically. I, I think this idea about the wired home is going to take on a whole new meaning once this is finished and how do we design for that at the outset yeah exactly it's a, it would be it's it's interesting to think what kind of architectural manifestation that would take like how do you uh, uh, seeing how that um what that means spatially or or formally is uh, is uh, interests me but it, it would be it would be uh, it's I think trying to develop the kind of um, the research now for it might uh, uh, help us uh, embolden or kind of like empower our designs immediately as we start to think about you know, new projects moving forward. Yeah, well, I think what ends up happening is that right now when we think about health and safety and the built environment and, and like systems, we tend to think about things like safety as in is it a you know is it a neighborhood where there's a high crime or is there anything toxic in the sense of, you know, are you near a landfill of, of some sort of thing or former industrial site or something like that? I think there's been a lot of looking at that. But now what's happening is I think we're expanding our view of what health means in place in a way that, you know, we've known it. But it's now becoming, I think, I believe it's going to become much more front and center. We're going to start to see people starting to think about what is a healthy home. I've come to realize I, I was largely indifferent to video conferencing before just because I just didn't think I was fine. I was fine to see people. I was fine not to, but you know, more and more I'm really appreciating seeing people. 
Now that we're starting to think a little bit about how the home is constructed and what its multiple purposes are, one thing that is coming to mind more than ever is this interesting almost dilemma or dichotomy with systems is that you know when you think about a system, you think about it as a whole. So you think of the entire environment. We also have to think about the parts. And and one of the interesting things is just even the idea of like internet connection and the ability to to bring people into the conversation by way of having enough bandwidth. So now all of a sudden this whole part of the system is the idea of bandwidth, device, if they have that. But even if you break that down, so we might be meeting with Zoom or Skype or something like that, but is the ability to be able to see someone? And if, if it's inclusive, even this idea about being able to see visually, like actually having tools that people can look at and see what they're saying, can they communicate with their voice? It's so interesting to be able to think about all these things that all of a sudden get broken down and they get reconfigured within the confines of a, of a, of a home now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what it means to be able to live and thrive in a home. And I don't know how we necessarily build for that. Well, you know, I mean, I think that um, having internet access is still not considered uh, a fundamental right, and especially even broadband. Um, there are great swaths of Canada that have really little or no access to broadband uh, internet and being able to even do at distance learning is difficult. A lot of First Nations up north in Ontario here still have very little access to it, especially even at a home level. And uh, that I think building in those kinds of necessities, I think is going to be a future policy that we're going to really need to have and uh, what it means in terms of like um, how we construct our, how we construct our new buildings is just going to be totally changed by that. And hopefully, hopefully for the better. Most architects, when they're designing a, a home, it's usually for the the top 10% population in terms of income earners. Um, having an architect design a house is actually quite a quite a privilege that a lot of people don't get access to. Um, not to say that architects aren't willing to kind of um, do everyone's designs, but it's just it uh, architecture uh, architects have, have only a slight fingerprint on a lot of the constructed world. And yet, what's interesting is, is they have such an enormous fingerprint at the same time. What I find interesting is with the uh, pandemic and the the closures of everything and people being housebound is thinking a little bit from a public health standpoint about how it adds yet another layer onto the the issue around affordable housing and what that means for personal well-being and health. Because it's Mm -hmm. one thing to say if you have a home and the home is a place where you throw your bag at night and you sleep and, you know, maybe you, you know, you have the basic amenities in that, but it's a whole other thing when you think I might be there 23 and a half hours a day, not just live, but also work now. I think rethinking of that is going to hopefully change at least our understanding of, of health and, and the built environment. I don't know whether it's going to change policy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that you, you mentioned kind of the aspects of health and wellness that um, uh, there's a there's a building certification program out of the states. It was, uh, in fact, I think it was uh, uh, developed in part by the CDC 
and it's uh, called Fitwell. They're making it now available for multifamily residential buildings. And uh, it's a really phenomenal system to kind of utilize within your design process to be able to touch upon. They, they have uh, seven health impact ca- categories that are related to it. But I mean, it's got uh, over 70 evidence-based uh, design and operational strategies that can be used to enhance the, uh, the design of a multifamily residential building. Access to light, access to um, views of nature, uh, air quality, uh, many different aspects. It's just a, it's quite a great program. It was really started initially for kind of um, helping developers uh, keep an eye toward what's important in terms of uh, occupant and user health. Um, and uh, it was uh, it allowed for things like exercise rooms or gyms to be included within developments like office developments so that uh, the people in there could actually go and be active as well as even just the things like you know making sure that things are not on um, toxic uh, VOC lists that are uh, out there That's it was just yeah, it's a, it's a great and it's a very open program. It, it was it was meant to touch upon the ideas of health and wellness that really really impacted people's people's lives. It'd be interesting to see how that kind of certification whether it just uh, starts to become a little bit more implemented as a as policy. The people that developed um, Well were kind of offshoots of uh, the USGBC, but Well was used to fill the void that LEED wasn't hitting with new development by de- um, uh, new buildings by developers because it was it was the tenants that were uh, wanted the focus on the health and wellness for their employees to help attract employees as well as help retain them. When you're talking about filling the void, I think about that maxim, that phrase that what measured gets managed. Yes. And, and I think that idea is that this may be a good call for us to start to measure a little bit more about what how health is affected by our home. What is a healthy home from a, from a built environment standpoint? And we could measure that. And I, I believe we could without knowing the, the fit well criteria. But mm-hmm. I think if we could start to think a little bit more about that instinctively, Yes, for uh, definitely you know, it's something trying to impact uh, health and wellness. I think so. We've, um, I mean, Lead has done a great job of creating a marketplace for better uh, building products. Um, it's done a, a great job for um, allowing people to focus on uh, access to transit, um, stormwater retention, and uh, energy in particular. Um, but you know, there are uh, I, there there's always pieces in there that are um, left to the side, and that um, health and wellness aspect is something that was brought in by another couple of standards, which I think can be touched upon by lead. But um, it's uh, some of the social and inclusive aspects are are still I think uh, left a little bit outside of the margins of those standards, and it should be interesting to see on how those pieces kind of come into play in uh, future future design standards or even policy at, at a broader level. You know, what's interesting, it, it, I think a lot of it comes down to also the push and pull of who, mm-hmm. who decides. Like you mentioned that the 10% sort of thing at the top can really think about hiring an architect to design a home for them. And yet, when you think about the special needs of those particularly at the bottom 10%, often those with disabilities, those who are have large families and don't have a large income. It's interesting to, to think about whether or not, to what extent we can push these kinds of standards 
so that they get adopted in early as opposed to just the pull. Well, it is kind of interesting to think that um, uh, although the architects kind of operate at the two ends of the spectrum in, in a certain way that uh, a lot of the buildings you think that um, are uh, like talking about social housing stock, usually multi-unit residential, uh, even getting into kind of uh, uh, homes with a certain amount of health care connection. Those are buildings that are that are designed by architects. And uh, so you can see the rich and the, the other end of the spectrum tend to the ones that need it are also getting it. It's just the kind of the middle of it, that um, the big, broad middle of it, and even getting into depending on where you are. It's certainly impactful when you talk about kind of like how things. It's say, say we talk about indigenous um, uh, housing up north in Ontario and uh, their access to housing. Um, housing is a complete crisis up there, and uh, I think a lot of it is dealt with the fact that um, there's been. Um, uh, in terms of how houses are designed and built, generally, the, uh, there's a they go to a, a prefabricated catalog and, and pick out the, the home when they're allowed to do so, and uh, it's kind of delivered and built uh, without any connection, without any any voice of the future inhabitants of that house to say how they live. Um, so there's very little social connection and it's they're designed as single family homes again they're not designed as multi uh, multi-generational homes uh, which they tend to become and uh, the homes in terms of their construction quality although you know are quite good but they just don't last within how the buildings get used when you when you suddenly pop a hole in the wall of a of a prefabricated home to put in a wood stove wood stove heats up to some astronomical amount of heating the idea that the um, the houses that are kind of built uh, don't take into account the how the people actually live in them and how they use them. So uh, you suddenly have 10 to 12 people living in a single family house that um, has this wood stove. It's jacked up the humidity levels in the home and the that moisture has to go somewhere and it starts to move and migrate through the wall assembly. And uh, the, the homes are usually rife with mold within a few years. What's interesting about that is that what I'm hearing is that you, you've actually got both a very smart and a, a non-smart design, like a smart building. So the idea of actually being able to do prefab, which allows you to do construction up north in a way that you couldn't do otherwise, mm. that's fit for purpose for a single family dwelling that's using a certain kind of heating and a certain kind of living. Yeah. And yet it's a perfect design for the setting but it's not a good design for the people. Yes, the understanding of the, the the social nature of the design in terms of the community and the individuals that are using it, they've got no say, no skin in the game. Um, so, and then generally the homes do get abused and um, they just uh, generally fall apart. You know, I was involved in a, a little bit of a design scenario where we were looking at how do we fix this problem? Entirely privileged being, you know, architects in a big urban center. But um, the idea that, um, we were had some great minds thinking about it, and we were trying to look at some methods of modularity, prefabricated construction. Maybe there's some mass timber that's going into it in terms of uh, trying to reduce its carbon footprint. But what really came into my mind was the fact that there's a fundamental core of of a functioning of this building that has a should have an ebb and flow of constructed space around it, so that that core could actually plug into the community systems such as uh, water or um, sewage. In some cases, there are there's no connection to any of that water or sewage, so that it's like truck in, truck out. 
So, and how do you, how do you connect into that? And it became really super interesting to think of this as like a, a you know, uh, fundamentally as a, a systems thinking exercise just for that. And then you start to expand out and saying, what are the spaces that connect around this core? How do you, how do you make it so that building could potentially grow or, or shrink in size, depending upon its, uh, its housing, uh, the, yeah. the home's needs? Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. That idea that you could potentially, it's almost like saying if you had a common core that met that need, that you mm -hmm. could use it almost as a, not. I don't know if skeleton is the word, but something that you could actually shape things around there. And that gets back to what we were talking about before was this idea about living homes. The idea of imagining the home as a system that evolves for its use over time with, mm -hmm. with as families grow or contract or where the needs change and that. Um, imagining, you know, the idea of the home as almost as an organic living system as yeah. opposed to just simply a constructed piece of static material. Yeah, that's just got um, it. It's got a beginning and an end. <laughs> yeah, it's like no, it needs to accommodate many things. Many yeah. things change in a, in a, in the world, and yeah. And I think part of the other thing that's also thinking about also in systems is this idea about even if you could, you're also limited by who's next to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of uh, um, stick frame construction is that it's uh, entirely flexible and. Uh, the standards in it uh, make it so that you can quite readily add on to your own home without without really truly engaging in a in a design professional. There are some potentials there, but you know it, it always comes back to you know how does that as a city control it? They get it, control it through building permits and and uh, inspections during those processes to make sure these things are constructed safely. Yeah, what's also interesting I find about this is that where you end up getting that that tension, and I think some neighborhoods are better at this than others, but that tension between your space and others, and all I have to do is think about some of the trees. You go into some of the older neighborhoods and you have trees, and you think, well, the tree is on my property, and it may belong to the city, but it extends over my neighbor's property. Mm -hmm. So at what level am I responsible for my neighbor's um, well-being? And you can imagine this idea about thinking about what that means in terms of trying to create a, a healthy, supported, even inclusive neighborhood when you have shared assets that are, are controlled in a way by sometimes shared groups, but sometimes not. Mm-hmm. Well, especially that tree that's sitting out in your front yard, you're not technically allowed to prune it. So and I yeah. know my neighbors to the south of us, they basically, um, they did not enjoy the fact of uh, having a, a large maple tree shedding its leaves onto their lawn and it wasn't on their lawn. And it was, <laughs> it was a tremendous amount of work for them at certain time, at that one time of the year. Yeah, that's actually quite incredible. But, you know, there was a comment that you made um, uh, at our last recording. Uh, we were talking about, you know, understanding the priorities and uh, that how the house, how the home, it's got its broader levels of connections that extend outside into the neighborhood and trying to understand how that fits in green space, access to nature, actually yeah. access to um, views of uh, um, green space, uh, all truly, truly important. And uh, I think... Uh, it's one of those things that I think that as uh, designers and builders in the cities, um, it's going to become even more important for us yeah. to, uh, to encourage those connections. I agree. You know, it, it's interesting. I um, My PhD is in public health, and we never talked about 
the built environment. Which is we talked to people. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I know it, it is. It's absolutely incredible. I, I mean, it, it, um, and 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 even more so. I was in you know, behavioral science, so it was all about how people use things and behave with things. But what's interesting is, is like we would talk all about getting exercise. We would talk about uh, eating right. We would talk about these sorts of things, and we might talk about some systemic things like access to food. But we would never talk about where that was consumed, where we started, where we, you know, the idea of, of the home as being so central to public health. Um, I think you're starting to ask the right questions, though. I mean, I remember there, there was one question that you asked in, before, and that was, what is home? Um, and uh, to think about home as something that uh, keeps you safe, uh, allows you to grow, but as well as allows you to engage with the, the community around you. Yeah. So, so is home something that's uh, just a singular construct of a building or is it actually part of a neighborhood, a broader community that you exist within? Yeah. Well, what's so interesting is that what we talk about when we talk about home, if at all, it's home care. So the idea is that when you're sick, maybe you can get some care in the home. But we don't talk about what home means like living in the home, thriving mm -hmm. in the home, you know, the, the, the actual thing of actually creating health in the home. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's so interesting to, to think about that. I, I, I find that, that health gets, gets brought into so many other disciplines, and yet the discipline that's got health in the name doesn't bring these other disciplines into it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there, there's. It's funny that you uh, mentioned kind of like bringing things to the home. Uh, uh, we're involved in one project right now uh, in the office that, or potentially, will be involved in it. But it's the idea that for a a condominium project, a multi-unit residential building, that instead of kind of like building something like that and kind of associating yourself with the community center or something local to that, actually want to internalize the community center. So there's there's an aspect there where they kind of are bringing the community into the broader aspects of this multi-unit residential project. And it's, uh, it's super interesting. See, that's so important. Like this idea about having to go out, you know, that ability to not have to travel. I, I've seen um, a slightly different thing um, where you have care homes. So whether it's assisted living or more be like a formal nursing home, as they would call it, incorporating things like daycare in into those places. So you have multi-generational contact within a, a care environment. And it, it makes sense on so many levels because the young children love to see those living in the home those living in the home love to see it. It also provides a space, particularly for workers. So if they have children in daycare, they can actually go to those kinds of places. It solves so many problems all in one space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the first time I'd ever heard of that was a few years ago of that being done. And I thought, well, it just, it makes so much sense. It should be interesting to see in the next steps as we come out of this crisis or as we follow through in these next coming months and, and uh, hopefully not years, how the conversation is going to change. That's a reminder of why we need to have architects much more engaged within public health. And, and, or maybe another way to phrase that is public health much more engaged with architects. I don't yeah, want to be putting in an architect. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a two-way street there.
idea of health related to emotional and mental stress associated with um, housing instability. It must be huge at this time. Yeah. Um, just by the sheer fact of people maybe not being able to um, pay rent and or, you know, they were in a crisis before. And then I just, just pile it on with this crisis understand how how are they getting their assistance uh, how are they being kind of uh, helped to kind of mediate their emotions and the, the mental stress that they must be feeling absolutely you know that, that's a really good point uh, t- to raise because i think one of the things is and it, it i think it comes back to this idea of home is that if it's a place that you're residing then all of a sudden it feels much more fragile in the idea that rent isn't due you get kicked out you have even a slight reduction in your income. You have a real issue. And if I don't pay my rent, I lose my anchor to my community. I lose my home. The data is, is clear on, on how impactful that can be. That idea of living with that worry gets into the body and it causes an enormous amount of damage. And that may be the, you know, there's been some talk about this may be the next hidden wave of the pandemic that's about to come is what's going to start to happen when these anxieties start to build. And, and that means you have to be able to, to make up that income, which you weren't able to do before the, the, the crisis, let alone now. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the um, rent is one aspect, but uh, when you also think about uh, people who have been not working, uh, they, they do own their home. Absolutely. And when you have that, that housing instability, it causes also so many ripples these are scenarios of which, you know, happen all the time. Housing instability, financial insecurity. And yet what this is, pandemic has done, one of the gifts, if you want to call it that, is that it's starting to reveal a lot of these relationships in new ways. But nonetheless is that once we go back, whatever we go back to, those, a lot of those things are still going to be there. I think that's going to be a, a, an interesting conversation about what it means to you know, live in a home be in a neighborhood, be part of a, of a community and being able to afford that. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to respond in the new design projects and new buildings or even ex- uh, renovations of existing buildings to, to see how they can uh, change to accommodate uh, these, these new realities. Maybe you're most optimistic. Where do you see things going once things settle, whatever that settling looks like? It's so hard to think about because uh, on one side, we were facing um, a massive existential crisis of uh, climate change. And we were starting to see a lot more traction to, uh, take uh, in projects to basically accommodate uh, mitigating those future future uh, those future changes. I mean, the climate is going to change. Uh, uh, we can't really stop that. All we can do is uh, mitigate our future impacts on it. And uh, uh, I mean, some of the goals of trying to get to carbon neutral by 2050 those are those are really really difficult goals to get to. And so suddenly, piling on that with this other crisis of uh, this another existential crisis, it'll be. <laughs> be an interesting time. I mean, uh, our firm recently just sent a letter out to federal government and the provincial government just suggesting some uh, potential 
things that could be done to in the in the short term to help make sure that projects that we are doing are are kind of not held back uh, so that we can actually get things moving forward so the economy construction can start very quickly when when we move in but we also then said double down and said uh, we should also not ignore the potential potentials that we uh, obligations we have toward meeting our climate crisis and yeah. uh, so uh, maybe if, uh, to help meet those uh, things, it would be to kind of release funds so that uh, few, um, research could be taking place on projects to see how they could potentially change to meet those those realities. And uh, there's not a lot of grant programs or interest out there in terms of kind of like meeting the the social crisis that we're that we're hitting. And it would have been interesting to add in that layer into kind of the request of just to maybe maybe we have to start to think about these uh, as as health within the built environment um, community health and mental health inclusivity with all of these aspects have to be taken care of as well as the existential crisis we're facing in terms of climate change i do sometimes wonder whether or not we can parlay this experience that is a shared experience globally around an issue on of health, the economy, um, you know, in many ways also the environment because of, of what we're not doing. Mm -hmm. If we can parlay that into some more uh, concerted effort towards climate change, which in, in many ways is the same. You know, it's a global issue. It, it's affecting the economy. It's affecting health. It's affecting everything. It'll be interesting to see whether or not we're able to take this example and do what you're talking about is this idea about reminding people of what we do can we build like literally literally build this in to what we're building yeah for the future um this idea about building things in for health into the future and thinking that that these things are all tied together my my most hopeful self thinks that there's a possibility for that i wonder what will happen of whether or not we will just think whew, thank goodness that's all over let's now move back to what we were doing um versus we have a chance now to think differently mm -hmm. and show that maybe we can tackle climate change. We've been able to do it for, with, for this and without any disrespect to any of the work that's being done in public health, it's not that complicated. It's, uh, it's tricky. There's a lot, of, a lot of moving parts, but what we can see, social distancing, we can, uh, you know, the physical distancing, washing hands, those things work pretty well. I mean, we can we can isolate this this virus reasonably well. It's having a, a big effect. But if you think about climate change, where you're dealing with things like weather systems and floodplains and and that sort of stuff like that, um, I like to think you know there's some hope that that we've been able to marshal all of these resources for this. It might give us some excitement and 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 energy to, to say maybe we can tackle climate change. Yeah. Once this is all done. Yeah. No, I think that is the um, we have to be we have to remain optimistic. I was reading uh, recently that um, uh, there's a city in uh, uh, the Netherlands that is looking at trying to change how um, they work on, a, on an economic basis. It was called it was um, policy called uh, uh, donut economics, uh, where it uh, looks at um, this um, ring or a donut where um, things that need to be done in terms of community health 
um, a response to climate change is kind of dealt with within the ring of within the center portion. You always have to take that into account. But then um, looking at the outer ring as being this outer boundary where you do not go past it because it's outside of the bounds of your what your uh, carbon economy and what your energy, what your systems can handle. So it would be interesting to see how that works. Uh, I believe the woman's name is uh, Kate Rayworth uh, out of Cambridge that has um, pioneered this this look, and it's um, it kind of goes it goes away from thinking about everything as a, a reference in economy to uh, GDP and growth, and uh, it tries to keep uh, it looks at uh, a stable economic system. The idea of GDP and growth, I mean it's all meant to serve one purpose and that's human health and well-being you know and yet we kind of forget that now unfortunately it's mostly to serve health and well-being obviously more for some than others but this idea at its base about why are we doing this in the first place is that if you don't have the health and well-being nothing else matters mm -hmm. and i often think you know that's another thing that's coming from this is at least temporarily and hopefully permanently people will start to think a little bit more about going you know, my home matters in a way that it didn't before. My neighborhood matters. My health matters more than it did. And maybe my family and friends matter in ways that I hadn't thought about them before. Certainly the internet matters in ways we hadn't thought about, as we've discovered. Maybe the... <laughs> Maybe that fundamental thing is we have to make internet a fundamental human right. Well, John, this was great. I, I, I really yeah. enjoyed this. This was this was a qu quite an interesting conversation, and uh, it went it went in a few a uh, few few directions there, but I thought it was pretty <laughs> good. Yeah, hopefully, be able to pull something yeah, but, cohesive but, together with the multiple stops and topic yeah. changes, splicing in some audio. Kaveh's going to have his uh, work cut out for him. No, no. It was the 11th episode of Quantization. We want to thank Cameron and John for accepting our invitation and all of you for listening to our podcast. A special thanks to Marshall Bureau for all the scores he composed for Quantization. For more episodes, more information, and the full transcripts, please check out our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Podcast.